Let's open with prayer. Father, we give thanks for the opportunity to be here on the Lord's Day, the day where Christ rose from the dead victorious over sin, death, and hell, and victorious over our own hearts. We give thanks that you've come and interceded where uh, an intercession was necessary, that you've made us new creatures in Christ, and that you call us to serve you. Father, uh, as we celebrate today, uh, also Reformation Day, we pray, Father, you'd help us to make a faithful assessment of where we've been and where we're going. We thank you that we know the end, that is Jesus wins, and that we're on your team as we find ourselves in him. Use this time to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. So, as I mentioned in prayer, it's Reformation Day, October the 31st. Uh, today, uh, Dave asked me to speak on the topic, and I've chosen to address this in sort of an eclectic manner, with an eye towards what I've heard on Reformation Day services. It won't be exhaustive concerning all things Reformation, but hopefully it'll be informative and Lord willing, it won't be exhausting. For some, I'll, I'll end up doing, uh, th so cards on the table, I'm not gonna do a whole bunch of unpacking of scripture today. There's not gonna be any exegesis. It's gonna be more historical. There'll be some historical theology and some vocabulary. There's a vocabulary sheet in the back there for you. Now again, I won't be doing any biblical unpacking or exegesis. I, I get the irony that as we celebrate Reformation Day, I'm going to talk to you about the tradition. Um, but I was not raised in the Reformed tradition. I came into the Reformed camp after being raised a Roman Catholic, and then I became an evangelical in a Bible church. Believing, however, that God is the Lord of history, even mine, I appreciate the biblical truths that I learned from both of these traditions, all the while rejecting their errors. As a Roman Catholic, I, rec I memorized the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds. To this day, the words of the liturgy of the Eucharist remind me that our God is holy yet merciful as I'm a sinner. And those words, of course, were, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. I appreciate that. As an evangelical, I learned to love the scriptures. And if you learn to love the scriptures, you'll do what the voice instructed St. Augustine to do, namely to take and read. This principle led me to butt heads with what I perceived to be the message of Christianity as I had received it, both from my Roman Catholic and evangelical heritage. The message that I believed the gospel to be was, namely, you get into the kingdom by grace, but you stay in the kingdom by works. That was my operating assumption. In my evangelical church, the altar call was the sacrament of choice, as it were, um, you know, I, uh, the altar call and the work of Christ was significant enough to erase any and every sin up until that point. And so I found myself at loggerheads as I would share, my go share the gospel with friends, but then think about the gospel as it applied to me, because they were different gospels. There was the gospel for the unconverted, and then there was the law gospel law sandwich for those who were converted. So once you entered this personal relationship with Christ, the unspoken expectation was that you abide in Christ in such a way that you're always growing in holiness and that backsliding was sure evidence that maybe, just maybe, although probably, you really were not saved and that you needed to go back up for another altar call. 
In that system, I tried. I sinned. I went forward to pray the sinner's prayer yet again. And so I read more. I prayed more. I witnessed more. And I sinned more. I went forward more. Now, this is my sort of short Luther experience, as it were, seeking to please God, but ultimately being vexed at the question of, how do I find a gracious God? After about two years of that as an evangelical, I met a Lutheran theologian, a guy named Rod Rosenblatt, and he was lecturing on the doctrine of justification. It was the first time that I had heard of the idea of imputed righteousness, the idea that Christ's life is credited to the believer's account by faith. The idea that because of Christ's imputed righteousness, the Father looks at me in the way that he looks at Jesus. I couldn't believe that at the time, though. I believed that my own righteousness kept me in the kingdom and retained God's favor. My view of the gospel was that he died for me, and then he gave me the gas of the gospel so that I could power through the Christian life to impress my heavenly Father. My view of Christianity was essentially synergistic. There were two energies at play in my theology, God and me. In the famous words of Southern California evangelists, God had voted for me, the devil had voted against me, and the ball was in my court. I cast the deciding vote with my own obedience, with my own interpretation of the historical facts of Christianity. And if I made the right choice, well then obviously maybe I was we wouldn't say it, but better than others. So, of course, I argued against this idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness with my friend. And my friend, I remember the guy that brought me to the study, he said, I'm not going to argue with you about this. Now, for my friend to say this is phenomenal because he's uh, just shy of a PhD in philosophy and arguing is all he does, and he almost always wins. But his answer was, I'm not going to argue with this on, on this. Go read Paul right? That's all he said. Go read Paul. Um, and also, he told me something that hurt. He says, you need to stop being a Catholic. He said, go see if it's there. Go see if it's there. Now, I was deeply offended because I didn't consider myself a Catholic. I didn't pray to Mary anymore. I read my Bible, so how could I be a Catholic? But as I read Paul, I was convinced of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, I even became convinced of double imputation, the idea that the imputation of my sins were placed on Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness was placed on me. And as I continued to read Paul, much to my Lutheran friend's chagrin, I also became convinced of foreordination, election, and double predestination. Now, of course, uh, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, there were good brothers in a local Orthodox Presbyterian church that slowly shepherded me towards these conclusions as I asked questions and fought with them, and slowly they won me over. More importantly, Scripture won me over. Now, I didn't know how to interact with these guys. I called them the church government dudes because I was very uncomfortable with men coming and talking to me after a service and saying, you could talk to this elder or that elder. I, I didn't, this did not compute because I'd never heard of nor seen elders before. There were also faithful families who showed me in practical ways how to live as a Christian. That's, in short, how I became a member of Reformed Church. It began in the summer of 1991 after I graduated high school. Uh, it's been 30 years. 
I've had my share of opportunities to hear much on the Reformation during those years. I've regrettably not taken advantage of all of them. But I am grateful to God to have the opportunity to reflect on some of the things I've heard on Reformation days of past. And I will summarize some of them. So, perhaps, first of all, it's kind of interesting, and it's worth noting, that in a tradition uh, that isn't really big on following a liturgical calendar, that we get all excited right about Reformation Day. We'll break out our orange ties, uh, we'll wax eloquently on Luther and Sola Scriptura, etc. But the fact of the matter is, as you know, the theological heirs of the Puritans, uh, that's not a big thing in terms of celebrating special holy days, but we do tend to put a premium on that. Now, there's reasons for that. You know, for me, sort of due to my view that the Christian Sabbath is the market day of the soul, I usually privately wonder whether we need to have such Protestant holy days, as it were, if we consistently practice what we preach as Protestants Lord's Day by Lord's Day. That is, if we're faithfully expositing or unpacking the scriptures by the Lectio Continuum, sort of unpacking books of the Bible, teaching the whole counsel of God, not being able to skip over things, uh, are we not teaching the whole counsel of God if we do that? Do we really need the occasional connecting of the jumper cables, as it were, to keep our tradition turning? So as promised, uh, Here's some of the things I've heard on Reformation Days. And by the way, for the record, it's one of my favorite days. Um, first, we have a lot of Latin slogans. So let's get the Latin out of the way. Any or all of the solas of the Reformation are fair game on Reformation Day. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, Sola Deo Gloria, Soli Deo Gloria. It has always amused me, however, that we have five solas, and each sola is promising that we have this alone. But of these alone, we have five of them, which is kind of funny. Now, as often happens in church history, distinctions, and that's what theology is about, making distinctions, they're made to clarify something in face of an error. So there's a reason for the five solas, and it has to do with negating the additional doctrines of men that were out of accord with Scripture that slowly became accretions during the medieval era. So first we'll look at sola scriptura. In contrast to the Roman Catholic position, where scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, magisterium basically meaning, you know, the succession of popes after St. Peter in that scheme, those are the authorities, right? Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. There's this dance that they do, and that's ultimately where authority comes from. They act as the authority for what we're to believe and to do. Whereas for the Reformers, they held to the sufficiency of the Scriptures alone. In the words of the Shorter Catechism, Shorter Catechism number two says, the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Shorter Catechism three, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what God, duty God requires of man. That's sola scriptura in a nutshell. Sola gratia. This is the idea of salvation by grace alone. Again, the Roman church taught that salvation was of grace, but grace was a medicinal substance given out by the seven sacraments of the church, and that grace or faith was made full or complete when it's formed by love, which issues forth in good works. 
And for the Romanist, those works are necessary for salvation. Essentially, the Roman position was and is that you are justified because you're sanctified. In opposition to this, the Reformers argued that salvation from beginning to end was by grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone is, the, is sufficient for the Christian's justification, not because of the faith that we drum up, but because of the object of our faith. Namely, our faith is in Jesus. Isn't, isn't our faith in the sense of it's something that springs up from within us, but it's the supernatural gift of God, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And that supernatural grace of God enables us to reach out and receive what God has promised in the gospel. Faith is the instrument through which we receive grace. For the Protestant, we are comfortable speaking of being justified by faith alone. The Catholic isn't because they think of justification as including sanctification. For the Protestant, God justifies the wicked by imputing their sins to Christ and imputing Christ's righteousness to us. This is by faith alone. Then God begins the work of internal renewal or sanctification, wherein we mortify the flesh or fight and put to death our old nature. When you tell your Catholic friend that you're certain you're going to heaven, they look at you and they say, hold on a minute, I see you. You're a bit of a jerk just like me. How can you be so sure? Well, for the Protestant, the answer is Jesus. I'm sure because of Jesus. Again, they're saying this because they think of justification as including sanctification. They're justified because they're sanctified. Their justification includes internal renewal as opposed to a declarative act of God, as the Shorter Catechism would have us think. Christ alone, solus Christus. Christ's substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness alone is the basis upon which God justifies the wicked. Not our personal merit, not some depository of merit for some extra holy specimens wherein we can take advantage of their credit and transfer it to us. Kind of interesting, there's almost imputation there. Um, yeah, it's, it's not borrowed merit from a saint's supposed excess of merit. We don't, uh, you know, get extra merit by donating to support the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, as was the case in Luther's day. No, it's Christ alone. There's nothing about Christ's work which is lacking because he's done all things so well, so perfectly. And for that reason, we get to the last of our solas. So, really quick, we've got Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria. All glory belongs to God. All glory to God alone. All glory belongs to God because God's Word is enough. Christ is enough. Faith is enough. Grace is enough. God's monergistic, single-actor, one-actor, one-energy, word-and-deed revelation of His Son in time and space history is all that is needed and all that actually can redeem a people to His glory. Hence, the Reformers would often end things, and also musicians like Bach, I believe, they would end with soli deo gloria, right? That all glory belongs to God. God alone be all glory. Now, while we're in our Latin gear, let's uh, get rid of one more slogan of the Reformation. And uh, this is Ecclesia Reformarda. Ugh. I, don't, I wasn't the group of kids that took Latin. I'll be clear on that. Uh, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, and that is the church reformed 
always reforming. Now, this has been a theme in our tradition since a guy by the name of uh, Jokotus van Lodenstein. He was a pietistic Dutch reformed guy. And when I say he was a pietist in this context, I want you to think of this guy as being the uh, theological heir or theological counterpart of English Puritanism, but this guy's a continental reformed guy, okay? So he has a high view of personal holiness, personal participation in reading of the scriptures and prayer. So he believed as a reformed pietist, he believed that the Reformation got the major doctrinal and church government issues right. He thought the Synod of Dort was good evidence of the church's theology, government, and worship being reformed according to the word of God. When he referred to always reforming, as a pietist, he had this internal change of mind in mind, this internal spiritual change in mind. His concern was with the possibility of mere formalism and dead orthodoxy. That was his concern. Summarizing this viewpoint, Bob Godfrey of Westminster, California, he argues that Lodenstein's intention was probably something like this. Since we now have a church reformed in the externals of doctrine, worship, and government, let us always be working to ensure that our hearts and lives are being reformed by the Word and by the Spirit of God. Now, more broadly, this slogan in our tradition uh, has been understood as a call to always be doing theology in reference to Scripture and to bring ourselves under the Lordship of Christ as we do so, so that we are thinking God's thoughts after Him and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. However, it needs to be said that sometimes there's mission creep. Sometimes slogans which once meant something don't mean that anymore. Sometimes words in context are used in different contexts and can hijack uh, a tradition. And the example I have for you for my one time I got to hear uh, this uh, Latin slogan being unpacked is certainly a case of that. Uh, in the early 1990s, I visited a, a CRC church, a Christian Reformed church, um, that a friend was checking out. And in that case, when they unpacked this idea of Semper Reformanda, you rock, thank you. Um, this is a statistical anomaly. I never need water while speaking. Okay. Um, when I heard it in the 90s, uh, I, I heard that always reforming in this context had to do with sexism and the necessity of female elders if the church was to keep reforming. The argument that they put forth was that Paul was merely speaking from his time and personal prejudices and therefore could not help himself when limiting the offices of teaching rulers, uh, of teaching and ruling elders to men. If we could, they argued, pop Paul into a time machine and get him out of his own culture, he'd be all for women's ordination. Perhaps instead of Semper Reformanda, though, I would suggest to you they meant Semper Zeitgeist or always in the spirit of the age, perhaps. It needs to be said as we look at this that it's entirely possible that when we treat Scripture as a wax nose to meet the cultural situation rather than treating God's people as the redeemed of the Lord who are being re-imaged into the image of Christ, things are definitely not reformed, but rather deformed. Another topic I've heard uh, probably at least twice uh, 
certainly more than that, I'm sure, is the doctrine of justification by faith. And of course, Luther argued that justification by faith was the hinges upon which the door of the church turned. So no surprise there. Justification by faith, of course, is the idea that we stand righteous before God because our sin has been nailed to the cross in the person of Christ as our substitute, but also that he lived a perfect life for us and he gifts it to us so that the Father looks upon us in the same way as he looks upon his son, the second Adam. Now again, in my view, why should we have a special lecture on Protestant doctrine of justification as it, at the end of the day, is so essential and basic to being Protestant that nobody dare call themselves Protestant without it. So I'll go ahead and move on to my next topic. Now the next topic is justification. No, I'm not repeating myself. This is real. I heard another lecture. Uh, this is probably around 2000. Um, in Southern California, there's a, an Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a Faith Orthodox Presbyterian Church. They would host uh, several congregations and different Reformed denominations. They would have a joint Reformation Day service. They have it every year. They've had it about 28 times now. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity to hear the gospel preached and uh, to meet with brothers and sisters from around that presbytery, but also people from PCCA and URC churches. It's, it's a wonderful time. Well, this year they invited a gentleman by the name of Norm Shepard, and his topic was justification. And according to Norm Shepard, justification was initially by faith, but then finally by works with some hemming and hawing on the way through. Now, now that I think about it, apparently we really do need days like these to fine-tune our hearts and to think God's thoughts after him and not seek to magnify the flesh. Uh, another common one that I've heard through the years is uh, Reformed in World Life views being bolstered on uh, Reformation Day. And I've kind of lumped all these together. This is any form of Protestant triumphalism wherein we attribute big things mostly or entirely to the Reformed faith. Some of the big ones I've heard argued for are modern democracy, political freedom, capitalism, or the USA. Now, I think it's easy to show likely correlations for some of these. But the causation, fact of causation in history is almost never monocausal. And we need to be aware of one-stop shopping when attributing causation in history. And there's another point. Do we really think that we're going to win converts to the gospel with historical roots for argue, historical arguments for our Christian roots, for the Christian roots of our pet systems or institutions. I would suggest we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, unfortunately, the academy has also aided us in this regard. For example, uh, I'm sure all of you guys have taken sociology classes if you went to college. Max Weber's argument, right? Max Weber's argument in his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, um, it, it's considered the fourth most important sociology text, fourth most important sociological argument of the 20th century. And the thesis, as expounded by my professor and further reading through the years, I've always found that one fascinating. Uh, the thesis is that Protestant was linked with the flourishing of capitalism. Now, of course, you know, you can look at countries, etc., and find some strong correlations, right? You look in South America, which was predominantly Catholic, and 
not so good. You look at uh, Canada and the U.S., the U.S. in particular, and things have gone quite well, and Protestantism, Protestantism was obviously the, the larger body in that context. So his argument goes like this. Because Calvinist Protestants believe in double predestination, the idea that God predestines people to heaven and to hell, they know that they cannot work their way to heaven. So what they do do, according to Weber, is work hard, avoid self-adornment and waste, and exercise a type of worldly asceticism that in the end of the day accumulates wealth. Weber argues that all this labor is intended to show that these Protestants were elect. Anybody heard this argument when you took these classes? Yeah, it was painful for me because I'm like, I was only like two years in the Reformed camp, but I was like, I, I haven't met anybody that thinks that. And all of my reading doesn't, doesn't hold true to that. Um, so in, a Weber's, in Weber's argument, if we're going to put it, I suppose I should say Weber because he's German. Um, to put it in today's terms, according to Max Weber, Calvinists worked hard to keep up with the Joneses, not to display their wealth and their BMW, but rather to demonstrate who is elect or not. On Weber's read, more productivity and capital was a sure sign of election. Now, I've never met a Protestant that thought that in the least. But uh, according to him, he, he bumped into some uh, Puritans that thought that. Uh, I would suggest that uh, Weber probably studied theology some more. Now, anybody familiar with the Reformed faith knows this is bunk, right? Uh, it's, however, when you talk with people in the academy and universities, this is the dominant caricature that you'll hear about Calvinists while in university. But let's be honest, isn't this a little flattering, right? Yeah, I, we, we might deny, obviously, Max, you've got your theology all wrong in terms of the why, but in terms of the what, Maybe that's attractive, right? That is, we're critical of the why he thinks Protestants are productive, but we're not always so critical of the fact that he thinks we are. Weber's thesis has been debated for over a century, and increasingly scholars have kind of started looking at the documents and questioned Weber's argument. For example, there's a guy named Samuel Gregg. He notes, the widespread association of Calvinism with capitalism is theologically dubious, empirically disprovable, and largely incidental. Now, despite what you might be thinking of me right now, I really don't have a dog in this fight besides his misrepresentation of the doctrine of election. However, my concern is this. Christians, rather than saying, hey, Mr. Weber, you're no theologian, they often take his thesis and run. And then we tell the world, you like your high point of capitalism with your smartphone? Well, thank John Calvin. We built that, right? Sometimes we go there. Now, wherever you land with Weber's thesis, it needs to be said that arguments from history as to America's or capitalism's roots, even if true, and I think you could make a pretty good argument that there's some good correlations, they're not the same as the current call to repent and believe the gospel issued from a pilgrim people who are showcases of grace on their way to a heavenly city. If for whatever reason we feel compelled to argue for the former, that is, hey, look, Christians built that, then we also must double down on the latter, that is, but you too can become a Christian by repentance and faith. There's this guy named Jesus, and you need to know him. Now, ask yourself, which is more certain and which is more useful to the sinner? 
The fact is, when people are dead in their sins, when they hate God and their neighbor, they likely hate your arguments for causation as well. And they hate those arguments for causation because they hate your God and their enmity with him, as all of us once were. Seek to reconcile them to God. And God willing, they will see that history is the unfolding of God's degree in time and space history for his glory, which is seen everywhere, everywhere. Now, I've spoken of the high view of Scripture and of a God-centered theology in the Reformed faith. Uh, One would think that these would protect us from error, and that's one of my weaknesses. I think we've got this great theology. Uh, How could we fall in that ditch? Well, I've already shown that I was wrong a couple times uh, concerning things that I think about the, the ways in which our tradition being based on Scripture protects us. Note how many times I mentioned we likely don't need days like this. But, beloved, apparently we do. Opportunities to gather together and to regroup around themes where giants in the faith have reflected on Scripture and been faithful to it. Keep in mind that the examples of heresy that I gave you, whether it being Norman Shepherd on justification or Christian Reformed Church arguing for women's ordination, um, these examples came from historically Reformed churches, historically Reformed people, people who had a strong appreciation for all of the Latin that I just gave you. So first we need to learn that there is no safety in slogans. You can't talk I guess you can. You can talk about always reforming while all the while be deforming, according to the, not according to the Word of God, but according to the flesh. Terminology matters. Definitions matter. We must always define our terms. We must avoid the spirit, which is strong in me, of assuming the best of people always. But sometimes there are wolves that seek to come into the flock. And... Uh, we need to examine them. We need to be careful. We need to ask, what do you mean by this term? What do you mean? Because sometimes they can fill it with different information. That is the history of Protestant, Protestantism in America, right? All of the mainline churches. You know, PCUSA, from which we come, uh, you, know, you go look at, they have a wonderful book of confessions. It's like, They believe every confession, and lots of them are great. But if you believe everything, you probably believe nothing, right? And increasingly, that's what we see. Well, watch out for those who want to hijack Jesus for their own agenda. It's a thing. Second, there's no ultimate safety in labels. Just because you join a confessionally reformed church that's a NAPARC congregation does not guarantee faithful preaching proper administration of the sacraments, or biblical worship. Now, NAPARC, N-A-P-A-R-C, is North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council. The Constitution of NAPARC states this, the basis of the council is confessing Jesus Christ as the only Savior and sovereign Lord of all of life. We affirm the basis of the fellowship of Presbyterian and Reformed churches to be full commitment to the Bible in its entirety as the word of God written without error in all of its parts and to its teaching as set forth in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. The NAPARC currently has 12 member denominations. The largest which you'd like, likely know about are the Presbyterian Church of America, our own denomination, the ARP, that is the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, the KAPC, the Korean American Presbyterian Church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the United Reformed Churches. Now, I am glad that you are a member or an attender of a PCA church. But even that does not guarantee orthodoxy. Norman Shepard, the man who argued for final justification by works, he was a former Westminster Seminary professor, well-liked, very uh, compelling, very friendly, uh, very intelligent, former Orthodox Presbyterian minister, invited by an Orthodox Presbyterian elder, one of my elders, name you, mind you. There's no safety in labels. Now, it needs to be said, uh, all these churches that I've mentioned, they do have biblical structures for dealing with error when it pops its head up. But we need to remember that it does pop up. There's no safety in labels. There's no safety in slogans. There's safety in Christ and abiding in his word, abiding in him. We need to remember that. Be alert. Now, as I've pondered and listed Reformation Day services of the past, I've noticed that they tend to focus on things that unite Protestants and seek to show that the Reformation is still relevant. So for, in contrast, I've, I've never went and heard a Reformation Day service that focused on eschatology or theonomy or on the mode of baptism. In my view, there's many essential doctrines that I'd like to see get more love in such meetings, maybe creation, providence, vocation, or Sabbath. All of these would be worthy of examination because our tradition has much to say about these things, and perhaps in the cultural moment, they'd really be helpful. I'd like to say something before we close today about the providence of God. And opening that up, I'm just going to read the catechism, Shorter Catechism number 11. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. As we celebrate Reformation Day, it's essential for us to remember that the Reformation did not fall out of the sky. God's ordinary providence provided a theater from which the Reformation would grow out of. Namely, the Reformation grows out of the Renaissance, and the Renaissance is born out of the death of the Eastern Roman Empire, namely the fall of Constantinople, the death of the Byzantine Empire. And painfully, of course, we know that the Eastern Empire falls by Ottoman Turks. Muslims come and overthrow a you know, Eastern Christian Empire. In the midst of that, Christian scholars with Greek texts flee. We have a refugee crisis. These guys flee to Italy. And as they flee to Italy, they flee with copies of the New Testament in Greek. They flee with copies of Aristotle in Greek. For the first time in a long time, Westerners have been able to read Aristotle as Aristotle, not Aristotle through the Muslim scholar Averroes. How much more when Greek New Testaments hit the floor? Suddenly there is this Renaissance, and the Renaissance, of course, leads us to our last uh, you know, Latin slogan for the day, and that is ad fontes, 
ad fontes is the idea that you will go back to the sources, something every historian knows. You go back to the nearest sources you can find. And the nearest sources, of course, that a young monk named Luther finds is the New Testament. He picks up a lot of philological skills thanks to Erasmus of Rotterdam. Now, I want you to appreciate the pain that the fall of Constantinople had for Christendom and the Eastern Church in particular. That needs to be appreciated. But I want to remind you that Christ has promised the gates of hell will not prevail over his church. As a matter of fact, the gates of hell don't stand a chance. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus, and he will have dominion. Now, in this realm of ordinary providence, there was a young Augustinian monk who took the tools of the Renaissance from the likes of Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he got back to the sources. Of course, his sources were the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Not only was Luther gifted with all these philological studies, these abilities to study words in context and books in their original languages, but he also had the technological enhancement of the printing press. In hindsight, we know now that absent a full flowering of the Renaissance, the advent of the printing press, and the development of nation states, Luther would have become a crispy critter. Really, and he, he knew this, right? Uh, that's exactly what happened to Jan Hus 100 years earlier, right? The Czech reformer. Uh, there was a means that God had established through ordinary providence whereby Luther could pick up language skills, where Luther could, you know, not according to his will, have his 95 theses picked up and translated and put all over the place thanks to the printing press. In God's providence, in the flagging of worldly glory, as a mighty kingdom fell and saints were fretting, God raises up a beacon in Luther. Luther's 95 theses were, as it were, the first viral post. And maybe that's a, a useful way of thinking about it, because it went viral. It was, if you were a Catholic authority, you would think it was a virus, right? Uh, but Luther's word gets out. So, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we celebrate Reformation Day, I want you to consider God's providence. Consider God's historical enactment of his decree. Don't doubt his wisdom. Sometimes it looks bleak, as I'm certain it did for Christians as they were fleeing Constantinople. Yet sometimes it's the very tool that God uses to bring forth clearer light in the midst of darkness. Now, we don't know how that pans out because we don't know the future. We can study history. We can study our God. Whether God breaks forth clearer light from the darkness now or in the age to come or in both, we can trust in him. Whatever God's providence holds for us, beloved, don't fear. Trust God. In Luther's famous hymn, which I'm guessing we'll sing today, it is Reformation Day, uh, he is our mighty fortress. And that's all I got for you today. You guys got any questions or comments? I know that was a lot, very eclectic. All right, let's pray. Father, we give thanks uh, that you've not left us as orphans, 
but that you have sent your spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And how we thank you for your normal reign of providence, where all things happen according to your will. And that, Father, we see even in uh, this difficult time in the era of the church, specifically for the Eastern Church, that uh, you use that as a means of magnifying your word, that men would have an opportunity to study diligently the scriptures in their original languages and teach them openly to anybody that would hear. We pray, Father, that we'd be faithful to that tradition based on your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.